Hi ladies, you're listening to The Goodness Podcast. My name is Noor Tahini. I'm the co-founder of Goodness and I'll be your host today. Goodness was launched in 2018 as a platform dedicated to tackling topics surrounding women's health in a real and honest way. And we're continuing on that mission with the launch of this podcast series, which will feature real women and real stories from the Middle East. My guest on the podcast today is Dr. Karin Al-Khazan, a clinical psychologist and the vice president of MIDA, the Middle East Eating Disorder Association. She's joining me today to discuss the growing rates of body dissatisfaction and eating disorders amongst women, as well as what we can do to shift the narrative around body image. So a little background story for our listeners. Dr. Karin and I met about a year and a half ago when I became her client, and she helped me work through some body image issues and the remnants of an eating disorder that I carried with me from my teenage years, as she has been helping hundreds, if not thousands, of women over the years. Dr. Karin, how long have you been doing this work? 15 years. 15 years in the UAE? In the UAE, yes. And how did you, how did you get here? What was your sort of journey to where you are today? My journey, it's an, an interesting question. Uh, I think it started uh, in childhood. I come from a family, from my father's side, very beautiful women, but very much self-obsessed with be- being thin and at the same time obsessed with eating. Mm-hmm. So I grew up listening to them, eating and feeling guilty for the food that they were eating and then starting all kinds of diets. And from my mother's side, European women, very beautiful as well, but much more in control, where food is not really a necessity, you know. Why should we have lunch where we had breakfast? Mm. These types of comments. So it is clear that I grew up with some body anxieties, you know, stemming from those two um, uh, women uh, figures I had in my life. And uh, naturally, when I studied psychology, my interest went to eating disorders. And um, when I graduated in Paris, I had taken a year of eating disorder specialty. And I came to the UAE and uh, I started working, but I was not doing well with my patients. So basically, I, I felt that there was more I could offer them. What I had been taught was not enough. So I went on a journey of uh, trainings, and I've been training for the last 15 years in very specific eating disorder therapy. And at the same time, I have been contacted by the founder of MIDA, the Middle East Eating Disorder Association, who contacted me um, 10 years ago and asking me to help him grow MIDA. Mm-hmm. And this is how you know the second part of my work started in terms of prevention, raising awareness, and trying to make a difference in this region in terms of eating disorders and obesity as well. So in the past 15 years that you've been in this line of work in Dubai, have you noticed a change in how many women are coming to you with eating disorders, with with body dissatisfaction? Would you say that body dissatisfaction is generally on the rise? Yes, it's it doesn't concern women, but also what strikes me is the number of men that mm. have come for treatment. When I started, I had maybe one random patient, you know, who who used to have uh, who had an eating disorder. Today, I have 25% of my eating disorder and obese patients are uh, are men. Mm-hmm. So this is the first thing that has evolved. So I'm glad because I don't think it means there are more eating disorders. I think there is maybe slightly less stigma mm-hmm. and uh, more shame awareness. and more awareness around men seeking help, 
for women's disorders. Mm. So that's on the positive hand. Unfortunately, I think our culture is very much prone to nurturing body dissatisfaction and eating disorders because there's a huge pressure on the Middle Eastern woman to be very beautiful, mm. very thin, and very perfect in all areas of her life. So for example, if you look at uh, European women, Working mothers, you know, that go to work and, and, uh, and have children, uh, it's okay if they're not really taking care of themselves because it's, it's understandable that these women don't have time, have limited help. So if they're not perfect all the time, it's fine, mm. you know. But here in this region, there is a huge pressure for women to be working and groomed and beautiful and uh, taking care of their families. I think there is more pressure in this part of the world, which explains our numbers. So we don't have official numbers for eating disorders in the region, but we have a lot of surveys that have been done. Mm. And the preliminary studies suggest that uh, our rates of eating disorders in this part of the world is double no way. Yes. Wow. So if the prevalence of anorexia nervosa is 1% in the UK, in the UAE, we think it's 1.8% uh, based on multiple surveys done on students, etc. I think the, there is something about the Middle East and this pressure if you're not thin, beautiful, you won't get married. If you're not married, you can be happy. Mm. If you can't have, you know, you won't be able to have children, create a family. There are clear pressures that maybe are starting to fade away in the West, which is not the case for us. Yeah. What do you think are the main contributors to body dissatisfaction? So body dissatisfaction is something quite prevalent in the population. It doesn't drive eating disorders mm. because uh, uh, it's not severe enough to impact your eating in the long term and cause the kind of impairment that will be caused by having an eating disorder. Usually people who have eating disorders have what we call the over-evaluation of body shape and weight, which means the whole of their self-esteem is based on the way their body looks mm -hmm. and the, uh, the number on the scale. Body dissatisfaction is just not being very happy with your body and trying a bit to change it, but you will not go to extraordinary lengths to change it. Mm. You will not do the crazy things that people with eating disorders might do. Your question is a very important question. And again, as a psychologist and as a mother, I don't want to always blame parents. But mm. clearly, you know, it's something that is built uh, or develops very early on in, in life. So basically, your parents' relationship with their own bodies, the comments they will do on your body, the comments they will do on other people's mm. body, automatically it's putting an emphasis and it's saying that thinness and being thin is something valued and good and it should be a pursuit and if you're not that then you're not good enough and you should do whatever you can to go there and this is where we usually specifically during puberty the body changes so so young adolescents will you know try to go on diets and this is where usually eating disorders start what percentage of your eating disorder patients are younger women are they like teenagers or school? The girls? majority of my patients. Okay. I, I'm, I think very much in line with the statistics. 90% of eating disorder sufferers are young girls between the age of 12 to 25. And I completely go into that category. I mean, most of my patients are teenagers. 
And um, it's good. I'm glad when someone young comes because this is where we can do the biggest change mm. because the disorder has just started. It's not ingrained yet. It has not become part of the identity of the person. So this is where our therapeutic approaches work best. Mm. It is more difficult to treat a woman who has had anorexia nervosa for the past 40 years. I'm not saying it's impossible. And I have a lot of success stories with older women. So really my message is recovery is possible at any age mm. and any stage. But clearly the younger the, the, the younger the patient comes to treatment, the better the outcome. And this is very well documented in the literature. And what will cause someone to develop an eating disorder? You're saying not everyone who has body dissatisfaction will end up with an eating disorder. What is it that sort of tips you over the edge and into a mental health problem? It's a good question, and I can answer for anorexia nervosa because it's also very well documented that those, I mean, there are, there are what we call personality traits that predispose for developing an eating disorder, for anorexia and for bulimia. For binge eating, it, it's, it's a bit different, and I can tell you more about it. But for those two, because anorexia and bulimia are very similar, basically these, these young girls are usually what we call type A, so they are very high achievers, mm. they have very high standards, they are the best at everything they do. They are perfectionists, mm. slightly OCD, so obsessive. So when they put a task in their heads, it becomes, you know, they, they, they don't shy away from it and they, they're very determined. So when they start dieting, they become the perfect dieter mm. and they, can, they reset the bar always higher like any perfectionist. Any perfectionist, when he gets to his goal, mm -hmm. will reset the standard even higher. And that's why they're never satisfied. So it's the same. So she lost the amount of weight that she wanted. But of course, there's an underlying, you know, she's not happy. And when she lost this weight at the beginning, it made her feel good. I call it the honeymoon period. So it made her feel good. And she thinks if she loses more she will feel even better. So she continues on this pursuit that is bound to fail because every once in a while, you know, she realizes that even with everything she has achieved in terms of weight loss, she still has a low self-esteem. And on the contrary, once the symptoms of starvation start to hit, they become, you know, isolated, their school grades go down. Mm. There's a lot of side effects to that. So I would say... Eating disorders are a combination of multiple factors. So you have the biological factors, specific personality traits, and then you have the environment, of course. So basically you can think of it as a gun. You have the personality traits that, that, uh, that load the gun, and then you need the, you need the trigger. Mm. And the trigger is the environment. And it is clear, and you, you work in media and fashion, so you know better than me, the rise of, of uh, social media has also contributed to escalation of, of uh, eating disorders. Because today we are bombarded with images that are completely photoshopped, airbrushed, etc. So, and uh, young, young uh, teens are constantly uh, bombarded by those messages, and they think that if they're going to reach this unattainable image of, you know, perfection, they're going to be happy. And the problem is that those images are unattainable because they are fake. They are, you know, made up completely. And the second one is even if you lose weight and you, you know, you, you enhance your physical appearance, it, it is in no way correlated to happiness. So it is a pursuit that's bound to fail. So the environment, social media, the pressure to be thin, pressures on women act as a trigger. 
Last week, we recorded a podcast and we were talking also about the impact of social media on sort of telling women how they should look and how they should feel. And I mentioned the Fiji study that I had heard of from you, but I didn't, I couldn't quite remember the data, the statistics, etc. Do you know them? Yes. By heart? Could you tell our listeners about it? Yes. Yeah, so in 95, before 95, there was no TV in the Fiji Islands. And in the Oceanic Islands, being curvy and overweight is a sign of wealth and health and is something that's positively reinforced mm. historically. And women who are thin are viewed as sick or poor, you know, like in ancient times for our culture. So in 95, they introduced the TV. And when they surveyed a group from Harvard Medical School, went there and surveyed young girls from a school, and they found that eating disorders behavior were ranging around 3% at the time, so very, very low. And then TV was introduced, and those researchers went back in 98, and the rates had tripled, mm. basically. Okay. So it is clear that the environment acts as a trigger. But it's not only the environment. The environment will be the trigger. If you don't have certain personality traits, you will not develop an eating disorder. That's why if you look at the data on dieting, 35% will develop some kind of disordered eating, and 25% will develop an eating disorder, not 100%. Mm -hmm. Because you need the personality traits that are going to make you, to make a diet go out of hand. Whether it is the perfectionism, um, high, st uh, high standard of the anorexic, or the difficulty self-regulating that some bulimics and binge eaters have. Mm. And then they start using the food to self-regulate internally. So the diet will act as a trigger. And of course, the diet is very much pushed by society, so that's why I talk about environmental uh, factors, but not everyone will have this problem, thankfully. Mm. What is the role being played by the diet industry in all of this? It's huge because it is the trigger, right? And just for you to have an, an idea, in 2019, the growth of the diet industry, their net profit was around $74 billion dollars. So, you know, sometimes when I look at those numbers, I feel very discouraged and I'm thinking, you know, what am I trying to do? What are we trying to do? <laughs> trying to fight this huge lobby and this huge mm. industry. But diet, diets are very detrimental. Even if you don't develop an eating disorder, you will, it will definitely disrupt your natural relationship with food. It will create mental health problems uh, and, you know, You have different diets throughout, so all have been debunked throughout the years. So for that, the Ducant diet, the mm. guy was disbarred. But at the time, it was the, the holy grail, and everyone had discovered the solution. I tried it. And tried it. And then uh, now we have keto, and yeah. now we have IF. So these yeah. are the new trends. And I'm sure in 10 years, we'll, we'll see you know, the, same, the, same, yeah. the same type of data that will show that uh, they are detrimental. I mean, don't get me wrong. We also, in my department, we also help people lose weight because we do believe that certain people need to lose weight. Mm. People who have uh, medical complications from their obesity, sleep apnea, people who have psychosocial impairment, who can't travel, who can't have um, you know, encounters with people because of their weight, they are impaired. So we need to help them lose a bit. But really, data shows that if you lose between 5% to 10% of your body weight, all your medical complications will be reversed and all your psychosocial impairment will be reversed. So we go for very 
very flexible approaches in terms of weight loss. Uh, we target moderate weight loss and there are no forbidden foods and there is a very close monitoring and we target emotional eating. So we do help people lose weight, but definitely we are against all those very, very uh, restrictive diets because data show that 95% of all dieters will regain the lost weight. And from those, two-thirds will regain more weight than they have lost. So with time, diets are known to make you gain weight. And in my opinion, and in a lot of people's opinion, it is contributing to the obesity epidemic as well, you know. So that's why I'm, we're, all those health messages in schools and forbidding foods for kids, etc. I'm not sure it's the solution. I, I definitely think we need to do something about the obesity problem that we're facing in the region, but there are other things that we could be doing from a public health perspective than banning foods, for example. You mentioned the keto diet and intermittent fasting, and it's, it, it made me think, because it's something that comes to my mind a lot working in the wellness industry. I sometimes worry that wellness and health have become just a term to to mask another type of sort of weight loss and diet approach. Absolutely. And if you look at the vegan trend, it's the same. You know, I have met some people who do have genuine, you know, concern for the environment and who did embrace veganism out of um, values. But most of them, most of the people mm. that are doing a vegan or vegetarian diet are doing it to lose weight. Mm. And the real vegans are going to gain weight because they will have to eat a large amount of beans, pulses, nuts, fats, etc., to compensate for the lack of animal protein. Mm. And those will gain weight. So those who lose weight are basically being very restrictive and using mm. it as a cover-up. We have a new term now. We, we talk about orthorexia, yeah. which is the first cousin of anorexia. So basically using, as you said, wellness and health to cover up disordered eating. Uh, and, uh, and it's a problem because, uh, you know, Parents do that in front of their kids and their kids see them do it and it's valued and it's positively valued. And this is how, you know, you give your eating disorder to your child, basically. Mm. So whatever you want to do, try to, to mimic normality in terms of food with your kids, for sure, because they will pick up everything. And uh, maybe you are a grown person who is at peace with your body and, you know, you can do it without an undue cost, maybe, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say maybe, I doubt it, but maybe. But definitely as a teen, if you, if you embark in such a journey of becoming vegan or vegetarian or, you know, doing those crazy diets, free, yeah. you're setting yourself up for developing an eating disorder. You touched upon eating around your children and how restrictive eating as an adult which may come across as the right thing to do because you're cleaning up your diet and you're eliminating processed food, etc. The fact that it can actually have a negative impact on your child. So I wanted to ask you, for instance, you as a so you're a mother. Yes. Right? You have three children. I have three, you children. Have three children. How do you or what is the dialogue around food and body at home? So the the best way to sum it up is there is no dialogue <laughs> because. Uh, I try, we try not to talk at all about bodies, losing weight, uh, gaining weight, or anyone's body, uh, n not just our, our bodies, but we don't comment 
on body weight and shape ever. So, for example, I was in Lebanon last summer and my uncle asked my daughter, you know, what is your weight? And mm. she looked at him, my 13-year-old daughter at the time, and she told him, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> because because genuinely, you know, she, she didn't know because we don't talk. She doesn't know what is her weight. She takes it when she goes to, the, to her doctor to, for her regular checkups. But we don't talk about uh, weight. Uh, we don't talk about bodies. We don't comment on bodies. And I offer to my children a balance between nutritious and fun but without talking about it, without, you know, putting too much anxiety on the natural act that should be eating. Now, my children are thin, the three of them. But if I had a child who were overweight, I would probably tweak the diet at home without the child noticing mm -hmm. for all of us to eat maybe, you know, less rich food, lower density food So for for that child. But because my children are naturally thin, we, we work on the balance. So basically nothing is forbidden and they're allowed one treat a day, even though I don't like the word treat, but, you know, one dessert a day. Mm -hmm. So it can be whatever they want. But of course, we cook at home and they're expected to eat the food cooked at home, which is healthy, nutritious, based on the Mediterranean diet, which is the best diet. And then on the weekend, we can order pizzas, mm. we can order burgers, you know, but it's not something that we do every day for sure and several days a week. So uh, we, create to, 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 we try to create this balance. And most importantly, we don't label food. And when we're eating, we don't say how guilty we feel because mm. we're eating the burger and how we need to go on a run after to burn it. And we do exercise, my husband and I and the children see us exercise. And all the kids do activities. My son does football. My daughter plays tennis. The other one does ballet. But it's not to lose weight. First of all, it's less screen time for me. So when mm. they're out of the house and doing some kind of physical activity, they're not on their screens. Plus, it's because it's fun and it's enjoyable so I'm completely against gyms for kids for yeah. teens yeah. it's completely you know counterproductive and not recommended at all but I am for physical activity that is presented in a fun and enjoyable way mm. So that's what we do. And I think, you know, my, my children, my daughters, I have two teenage daughters, one who's turning 12 and one turning 14. They're very, very comfortable in their bodies and they never talk about their bodies. They never comment on their bodies. So I'm very proud of that. That's awesome. Because your children can have dessert every day or can have a pizza when they want it, etc., Did you notice that it lessens the sort of obsession? Of course, absolutely. And and my kids will be the only kids at birthday parties who will go and have half a, a slice of chocolate cake when all the kids will will put cake and candy and eat all the forbidden food that their parents forbid them to have. This is why, because this is, has been my journey, I know, I, I've studied it and I know very well what psychological deprivation mm. does uh, we say in Arabic uh, when you forbid something you start desiring it yeah. so I'm almost at a phase where my kids view the fruit and the chocolate in a similar way not completely I'm not gonna lie not 100% yeah. but really there is you know they know that they can have it it's there we go to the US to the UK I bring them you know special chocolates that they they ask me to get them or candy so there is you know they, they can have it what they want so So their behavior around food is very natural and they will never overeat from something, never. And when I observe the other kids and I see how they, you know, rush to eat, you know, all those foods that are forbidden at home and it's very well documented, the, the psychological mm. 
deprivation and the whole I have broken my rule and I'm eating, so let me eat as much as I yeah. can because I don't know if tomorrow I'll yeah. be able to have yeah. a chocolate. Yeah. Is it important to teach children about nutrition? Yes, but without uh, scaring them, without terrorizing them, without demonizing any food groups, it is okay to eat food that has no nutritious value because it makes us happy. You know, it, mm. it, it can put us in a good mood because it tastes good. It's fine. So I teach my children about the, the value of nutrition. My older daughter is uh, quite a picky eater. So, um, so, and she's deficient, she has anemia, things like that. So I work a lot with her on explaining, you know, food is medicine. Yeah. And, and even if she doesn't like it, she has to eat it because it's nutrients, it's vitamins, and we need it to function well. Uh, when my children were younger, I used to use the, the car analogy. You know, you, you have a car, your body's like a car, and you're going to put fuel in. So you need to put a nutritious fuel because otherwise you will, be, you will be tired, otherwise you won't be able to concentrate at mm. school, you won't be able to run fast, not because you're going to become fat otherwise. Yeah. So we talk about other characteristics of food because food is really medicine. It's not only a question of eating healthy to avoid weight gain. We eat healthy because we feel better when we eat healthy. Yeah. So, so this is the kind of education that, that we do around food. And of course, you know, sweets and processed foods and fast foods are not demonized, but they know that there is no nutritional value and that they can have it because it tastes good, because, uh, you know, it's a, it's a way to socialize with their friends. There's no problem, but they're educated on the difference between both. But without terrorizing them, you will have diabetes if you have sugar or you are going to become fat. We don't talk about those yeah. things at all. Yeah. So a child's perception of their body or, or a woman or a man's perception of their body starts to happen at a very young age. Yes. And the things that go into that are their environment, the way that their families and their parents talk about their bodies, the media that they're exposed to, and the messaging around food or their approach to food. Absolutely. Now let's fast forward. Imagine a woman who, in my case, for example had already developed this negative body image and developed eating disorders, et cetera. And I'm in my 20s. I had, I'm not in my 20s anymore, but I, when I came to see you, I think I was 29 years old. And um, once the damage is done, what can we do to sort of counter that? What can women do to learn their, to love their bodies again? Let's, let's forget the, the extreme case of eating disorders. Let's just go first with women who have body dissatisfaction. What can we do to change that narrative in our minds. I'm going to ask you the question, Noor. <laughs> I'm going to ask you, did it change or not? Yeah, it did. So, so I think this is the first message, is that it can change. Even though you, had, you were carrying you know, many years of this problem, and yet you know, mm. very fast it changed. So the, I think this is the first, the first message. Uh, we are lucky today because we have excellent psychotherapies that are specialized for the treatment of eating disorders. Those did not exist 50 years ago. Those have been developed in the 80s, 90s, and today we have excellent methods to treat those eating mm -hmm. disorders. And the concern is not the therapy, is how many sufferers have access to this specialized therapy in the region. Very few, very few, because very few therapists know 
of those specialized psychotherapies. So uh, most of the psychologists have been to psychology school and are maybe excellent, you know, regular psychologists, but if they have not gone and studied those specific psychotherapies, they cannot deliver evidence-based care to, to this population and they cannot help them mm. because we know today that talk therapy is not efficient. So, so the first thing to do is to go to try to find a therapist that is specialized and who does, you know, a very specific type of therapy for eating disorders. Mm -hmm. This is the first step. And within this, these, there are a couple of specialized therapies, but they all, you know, work on reintroducing the avoided foods, showing that those beliefs are wrong. Mm -hmm. Then there's a lot of exercise around body image and uh, the bias that we have when we look at our bodies. A lot of the checking behavior that happens in front of the mirror. All of those very specific behaviors are targeted. And I have to say, as much as the, the behavior around food can get better fast, I mean, it's the thing that shifts, the, it's the first thing that shifts. In a therapy, you will see a patient stop binging or regaining weight in anorexia. The thing that is more difficult because it is the underlying core psychopathology and because it has been there since childhood usually, is the body image. Mm. It will improve, it will take time, but it will improve. And it will improve enough to reach what we call body acceptance. Mm. So we're not targeting body love. That's why I'm a bit wary of all those, you know, body positive movements, love your body. It's not easy to love your body. It's, a, it's very complicated. So uh, let's target something more realistic, which is body acceptance. I might not like all the parts in my body, but I accept it for what it allows me to do, mm -hmm. for what it gives me. So this is the type of, of, of mentality that, that we try to get to. Yeah, I think I can speak from experience when I say that the behavior around food was for me the easiest thing to, to overcome. tackle. Yeah, to overcome. And, and that's a change that happened the quickest and I was the most amazed with. And then the thing that takes the longest is the beliefs that you've held since childhood that you know, thinner is better, that, I don't know, what are some of the common beliefs that you see? Self-limiting belief. Thinner is happier. Yeah. Thinner is more successful. Thinner is more beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, and I think in my case, working in the fashion industry for seven years sort of cemented those in place. So they were there and, and then I, I kind of made them just even more important and cemented in my mind. And so, again, working through all of that and understanding that health is not just physical health, but it's your mental health as well. I think. There is no health without mental health. So if you are super healthy from a physical perspective, but you are struggling with food obsessions and you're, you're uh, you know, constantly counting calories and having a nap and spending your days in front of the mirror, checking your body to see if you've gained or lost weight, if you can't go out for a meal with your friends, then you are mentally unwell. So it, it doesn't matter if you're physically well. There mm. is no health without mental health. Mm. That's a good one. When would you say it's time for someone to seek help? Uh, what, how much of our relationship with our bodies and our relationship with food is normal? And when do you know that there's a problem? So for instance, emotional eating, right? It, we kind of say everyone emotional eats. And you even said to me that to some extent, everyone emotional eats because the relationship with food is from, a, from, from when you were born is very emotional. You cry, you get milk, you, you're, you know, so how much of it is normal and when is there a red flag that there's trouble? 
Yes, you're absolutely right. So we're all emotional eaters to a certain extent. And if you use it as well as other things to cope with negative emotions once in a while, there's no problem. It's it's part of normal eating. When you do eat, you produce serotonin, dopamine. So mm. it, it, it does have a self-soothing effect. It calms you down. It's a mood modulatory behavior. Uh, and unfortunately, in extreme cases like binge eating or bulimia, where people binge on large quantities of food, they, they use this to the extreme. And usually those people have no other ways to cope with their emotions other than eating large amounts of food. And this is not normal. Mm. So... so um, to answer your question, where do you seek help when the level of impairment is high? This is really the red flag. When you, your physical health is impaired, when your mental health is impaired, when, you, when you're obsessed with this topic, when it, you know, it, it's an obsession that interferes with other areas of life in your functioning at work or at school or socializing where you're turning down dinners and a social life just because you're afraid to eat and you're mm. afraid to gain weight. These are, this is not normal. If you're watching your diet and, but you're able to be flexible once in a while and it's not you know, taking a toll on your life, then there's no need to seek help for an eating mm -hmm. disorder. But if really it is a burden on you and it's impairing you, impairing your personal life, impairing your professional life, then yes, you should seek help. The reason I had asked you about certain behaviors becoming part of culture, becoming part of normal life is because it's something that really, really struck me when I started treatment or perhaps when I was a few months into my treatment, how many of these behaviors have become normal for us? So... Restriction during the week to have a huge cheat day on the weekend. I think you call it's it... binge eating. I think you call it like fuck it mentality, yes. right? So like when, when you... When you Break your rule and, yeah. and you go into the last supper mentality and yes. you eat all the food that you have been forbidden from eating during the week. And in your head, you're thinking about the week where you're not going to be able to eat those foods. So let me eat as much as I can. Now, it's normal to indulge once in a while and, and uh, to eat more. We don't eat every day the same, in the same way. And it's okay when you go to a nice restaurant or to a specific place that serves specific food to overeat from this food. But there is... What is not normal is the, as you say, the fuck it mentality mm. where you're going to go and eat as much as you can because, because tomorrow uh, you're not going to be able to eat. Unfortunately, a lot of eating disorder behaviors have become normalized and even, you know, praised. So, so be, oh, you don't eat uh, gluten, that's amazing. You're not having sugar, that's amazing. It is praised and reinforced. So that's why a lot of disordered eating will be masked and people will not go to treatment because they think that what they're doing is great. Mm. So this is a big problem we have, especially in, in teens, you know, even the parents, when a teen starts cutting out sugar or fast food, he is praised by his family. And it should not be the case because it is not normal for a teen to cut all this food mm. group. It is maybe normal to eat less of it. But when you start completely cutting out a, a food group, it's usually very much positively reinforced yeah. when it should be a warning sign. I think that there's still a lot of education that needs to happen around eating disorders, around the way that dieting behaviors can impact mental health in the long run. And maybe then 
these things will start to make sense. Yes, and we're not saying to feed your kids only processed and highly refined foods. Mm. Far from that. Uh, we're saying nothing should be forbidden, but as a parent, you control what you bring in your household. Mm. So if you don't want your kids to have uh, chicken nuggets, you don't go to a place that serves chicken nuggets and you tell your child you're not allowed to have chicken nuggets. Mm. You go to a place that doesn't serve chicken nuggets, that has a variety of healthier, uh, lower calorie options, and your child will order like you. But you can't take a child to a place and expose him to food and tell him you're not allowed to have it because self-restraint is a very difficult is very difficult for us adults children are even worse it's not built yet they don't have the capacity to self-regulate so you must help them self self-regulate without making a big deal out of it and without creating a problem so mm -hmm. if your child is not exposed to that type of food there's no problem but if he asks you for it it should be given in moderation with the explanation that goes along with it without terrorizing or demonizing mm. anything because next time when he's going to grow up, when he's going to be a teen, he'll go for sleepovers and the parents are going to get McDonald's or whatever and he'll overeat from it, which is much worse than just having it once in a while in moderation. Mm. Okay, so just to wrap things up, I wanted to ask you about some resources that women can turn to if they want to learn more about body image issues, if they want to learn more about eating disorders, eating disorder issues. I know that Mida is a great sort of first point of reference. Yes, it's an online platform. So uh, Mida is an NGO that has been created to raise awareness and to uh, help prevent the rise of eating disorders in the region and to provide uh, support for sufferers and their families. So there's a very nice website, www.mida.me, where you can find many information on, many eat on all the eating disorders. And you have a very nice library with lots of books for uh, self-help, And if you're a carer, you know, you can read certain books that can help you deal with someone you love who has an eating problem. And also we offer 15-minute free online support so you can log in and ask for, uh, for a 15-minute conversation with a specialist. So someone will, uh, will get in touch and you can at least have a preliminary screening session to, to know if you have a problem or if you have a loved one who has a problem. So this is... Um, This is, uh, yes, and if you don't have an eating disorder and if you're just looking to, you know, enhance your uh, relationship with yourself and work on more body acceptance, first I would suggest to take a step back from social media and, and reconsider all the people that you are following because this can have a huge impact on self-esteem. It's difficult to accept your body when you're constantly bombarded with those perfect images all the time, which, as we said, do not exist in reality. This is one. Two, I would invite you to think about the fat talk that you engage in when you talk about your body. If you are not going to respect your own body, who is going to respect mm. your body? So I think also it's very important the things we say have an impact on the way we feel. So if you're constantly saying, I'm fat, I'm fat, I'm a fat cow, I, my jeans, I have to lose weight, you know, these kinds of, of, of fat talks are definitely detrimental and not useful for body acceptance and will nurture a negative self-esteem, give you feelings of anxiety, depression, etc. It's so common, I think, for women to say these kinds of things to each other. Like, even it, with some of some of my friends, the dialogue is like, 
oh my gosh, I eat so much. I'm so fat. I can't like, I need to go and buy new jeans. I can't eat anymore. I, and it always reminds me of that scene in Mean Girls. I don't know if you've watched Mean Girls. No. You should. Okay. It's just a commentary on like high school for girls. But there's a scene where all the girls stand in front of the mirror and take turns saying what they don't like about themselves. So one says, I haven't watched it in a while, but one talks about her thighs. One says she hates her pores. And they sit there and it's like an acceptable... Not Social just, discussion. It's not just acceptable, but it's sort of like encouraged, which I thought was always really interesting. Yes, and it is the norm, uh, unfortunately, now, but you can be different. I mean, I'm not to talk about myself. But of course, my professional journey has been my own personal journey at also, I, I cannot deny it. And today I can proudly say that I am completely at peace with my body, acceptant of it, even, you know, uh, loving it and very grateful for all the things it allows me to do. And I have a completely normal relationship with food, that's for sure. But I am with my girlfriends, mostly Lebanese, and we're having dinner. And, and I am with my family, you know, that they, I did not treat my family, so they all <laughs> still have <laughs> their eating. Ask- Issues. No, you cannot treat people who don't pay you. I've understood that. <laughs> they don't take you seriously. You know, I, I have at the beginning, I really tried to help them. But then I, I, you know, I gave up and I understood that, you know, I am too close to them to yeah. be taken seriously. So I'm with my family and my and my friends, and this is all they talk about, you know, how we're going to become fat. And, and while they're eating, yeah, they're, yeah. they're fat-shaming themselves or they're commenting on someone else who's eating. This is all we, they talk about. And I can proudly say that I never, never comment negatively on my body or I never comment on what I ate. I even don't say I'm full. It's important for me to model in front of my children as well. Mm. But because also I don't believe it's helpful. And I, I don't believe, I don't see the added value. You're having a nice meal, enjoy it or, or don't have it. But if you're going to come and eat and feel sorry for yourself, it's really detrimental. And, you know, fat shaming starts with your own self. So, so, so I definitely encourage you, all of you, to, to think what of the kind of vocabulary you use when you talk about your own bodies. Mm. And again, the whole idea is not to say I have the best body and I'm amazing and I'm perfect. Of course not. No one is perfect. And this is not what we should be thriving for. But at least, you know, try to be at least body neutral. Mm. You don't have to be to love your body, but at least you can respect it and not engage in fat talk. So I think I would support the body neutrality movement a lot because I think it's very nice to be able to to talk about body acceptance and being okay with your body without necessarily being in love with it. Mm. Okay. That was really, really helpful. Thank you so much, Dr. Karine. And just to leave our listeners with a bit of information about where they can find you, you are at the American Center for Psychology and Neurology. For Psychiatry and Neurology. Psychiatry and Neurology. Yes. Thank you, Dr. Karine. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. If you're not familiar with goodness, head to www.goodness.me to access the online platform and articles and follow us at goodness on Instagram. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and share it, and we'll see you next week.